This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. We're starting a new series today, Antioch. So we're kind of calling it the first Christians. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 11 in just a moment. Um, But over the next few weeks, we are going to be exploring this church from the pages of Scripture and how it relates to who we are, a new community, and specifically what we do. And today, looking at the why and the what of Antioch. What made this Antioch church special? And I'm aware in a room this size, there'll be some people who know a lot about the church Antioch and others for whom not really have got any frame of reference for it, and that's okay. We will explore that today. And we're going to look at why are we talking about it. And the what and the why, these two questions are kind of actually sort of fused together. And as we look today at the story of this local church in Antioch, I just want you to keep in mind, to the back of your mind, the thing that we say about us here as a local church at New Community, that we exist to make disciples family members, and missionaries of all nations to the glory of God. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your presence with us today by your spirit. I'm just asking these next few moments and over these next few weeks, would you speak to us through your word? Lord, we, we love hearing your voice and, and thank you for kind of that prophetic stuff that you will, you have and you will continue to speak over us. Just pray now you'd speak to us through your word, and as we look at this story of this church, would you make it alive in our hearts? Lord, sometimes we can think that the main thing is something other than your word, but today, as we just look at your word, would you just come and, and speak into our hearts, ignite our hearts, bring revelation to our hearts, bring a sense of excitement to our hearts, that where we've looked perhaps for other things to fill that gap, as, as Luke said, Jesus, you, you, you and you alone and your plans and your purposes for this world, may that be the thing that excites us more than anything else. In Jesus' name, amen. So Antioch has 19 mentions in the New Testament, and the key moments, as we're going to look at in a second, are in Acts 11 and then 13 through 15. But the, this is important because the context of Antioch's place in the big biblical story actually goes way back. And this matters for us because we have been on this journey over the last few years of redigging the wells, which is rooted in Scripture and reliant on and led by the Holy Spirit. And we've been led by the Holy Spirit to be prophetically reminded of the call of God on us as a local church to be an Antioch type or style of church. And the significance of Antioch biblically finds its root in the much bigger story of God and his plans and his purposes on the earth. And if you've been here in this church for any length of time, this should not surprise you that this matters to us. Because we are all shaped individually and corporately by where we've come from and where we think we are going. And so for us as a church led by the Holy Spirit, we are continually on this journey of finding our identity and our direction in the Word of God. This is supposed to shape us, how we think and how we act. And so we see in the beginning of 
this biblical story, Adam and Eve, right at the very beginning, were given the task of stewarding and cultivating the whole earth towards its flourishing and its multiplying. The garden was supposed to grow. And then in Genesis chapter 12, when God chose Abraham to be the beginning of the new family of God's people, it was so that all families of the earth would be blessed. It's always been about a multitude of people from different tribes and cultures and races and tongues, all gathered into one family. And the, that purpose and mission, if you like, is the lens through which we understand the rest of the story. So that, for example, the law of Moses, through that lens, you understand, is a way of providing for God-fearing Gentiles who wanted to join the people of God. This is how you behave. And so like good priests, Israel was supposed to mediate between God and humanity and usher people into his presence. Psalm 22, David wrote that the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. Throughout the writings of of Israel's prophets, we see these hints and these kind of foretellings of a time when all nations of the earth, even Israel's enemies, will turn to God. And as we move throughout biblical history, the Gospels record how Jesus himself constantly broke through people's cultural categories and ethnic barriers. He heals Jews and non-Jews alike. He hung out with foreigners and even members of of the despised occupying forces of Rome. Matthew 8, he hangs out with the servant of a centurion. And at a time when people were divided amongst ethnic and geographic lines, he tells a Samaritan woman that the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, whoever they are and wherever they come from. And by the time we get to the book of Acts, Jesus has died on the cross and has been resurrected to new life, thereby making a way for all of mankind, whatever your background, whatever your story, to be reconciled back to God and added into the family. And right, and here's where we begin to land at the beginning of Acts, right just before he ascends back to heaven and the Holy Spirit's poured out the presence of Jesus for all people everywhere, he says to his people in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, where they were, to Judea, Samaria, the next places along, and ultimately the end of the earth. The church now was supposed to be the force that would be this ever-accelerating kind of expansion of the kingdom to bring in more people into the family of God. And Acts tells the story, this is all by just way of getting to Acts 11, as the gospel, tells the story as the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and ultimately the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Thousands of people are brought to faith in Jesus and added into the church. And the first church in Jerusalem is established. You can see it there in that little box bit out there, Jerusalem, just above where it says Judea. That's where the church is established. Acts 6. The church now has grown considerably. So to such an extent, new leaders are having to be raised up to serve the church. And as a result, the church grows again and it spreads more. By Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, dies for his faith. And as a result, lots of people are kind of scattered from Jerusalem. They flee for fear of their lives. But that doesn't stop the movement of God. 
Those people are now gone here, there, and everywhere, which means they're spreading throughout the Roman Empire, testifying to the faithfulness of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 8, the story goes, the gospel goes even further. This time, an Ethiopian eunuch, the first non-Jewish person we see, comes to faith. And Acts 8 is a marker of how the gospel crosses racial and geopolitical barriers. It's beginning to spread to the nations across Palestine and across Samaria. And by Acts chapter 11, we get to Antioch. Now, the beginning of Acts chapter 11, the first 18 verses, Peter receives a vision so dramatic, so world-changing, it needs to be repeated two more times for Peter to accept it. And the vision essentially is around the idea that God has welcomed the Gentiles. If you are not an ethnic Jew here today, that is you. This is very good news. God has welcomed in people who are, no longer, who are not just ethnic Jews, Gentiles. And the message is the gospel really is for all people everywhere. So let's pick up the story in verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. You can see Cyprus, the little island there. And Antioch, if you look just below that kind of cut-out box, you see Syria, and it says Antioch, top right on that picture up there. That's where the gospel has now got to. And Antioch is a pretty strategic location. It's the largest city in the area. It had its own marketplace, its own theater, its own palace. It even had a circus. They loved dance there as well. And the gospel spread to this, and the people spread the word, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, Antioch was a major cosmopolitan center that was predominantly Gentile and pagan, but it also had a big Jewish population within the city. So it wouldn't have been that difficult for these new Christians to speak the word to the Jews. And in one sense, that's natural, right? People tend to hang out, think about your own life, people tend to hang out with people who are from the same culture and ethnic background. Particularly if you move somewhere new, move to a new city or a new country or something, you tend to naturally gravitate towards people who are like you because they eat the same food as you and they like the same things as you and they speak the same language as you and you have the same cultural references as you. We have a natural bias to gravitate towards people like us. But look what something significant really does begin to happen. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and then Cyrene, just North Africa, you can see it sort of in the middle there, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. This is significant. Something new is emerging. These people are not just content with sharing the gospel and hanging out with like-minded people. The men of Cyprus and Cyrene, by the way, they're not even mentioned by name. Significant moment. These are just normal, zealous carriers of the message committing to the sharing of the gospel in everyday context. This is not about platforms and titles and meetings. This is about normal people in normal everyday life. And these people cross a, break through a major cultural barrier. This is the beginning of what 
we now call cross-cultural intentional mission, which is basically just a fancy way of saying taking it to people who are not like you, people who are different from you, people who have a different cultural background to you, a different ethnic background to you, a different socioeconomic background to you, a different whatever it might be. Remember that biblical story? All families of the earth will be blessed, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. And this is the moment where it's beginning to really happen. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Remember, it all started in Jerusalem. There was thousands of them there. It was this established, thriving church. But they heard these reports that, hang on, you're adding all of these other people in. These gent, what's going on? They needed to be assured that what was going on in Antioch was uh, legitimate and in keeping with the direction of the Holy Spirit. So let's carry on reading. They sent Barnabas to Antioch, verse 23. And when he came and saw the grace of God, just pause there. He saw the grace of God. There's something in the work, something in the atmosphere amongst those followers of Jesus in Antioch People from different backgrounds, different cultures, different everything. It's the grace of God on display in the look and the feel. It's not so much, well, this, this, and this. It just, it just feels different. It's just the atmosphere. It's the grace of God, the feel of the place. It's the grace of God on display. It's not down to anything else, a plan or design or any of those things. It's the evidence of the grace of God on display. And he sees it and he says he was glad And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now this is, that's Paul, still Saul at this stage. This is a growing context in Antioch. And and Barnabas realizes that he's going to need some help. So he goes to find Paul. And this gospel partnership between these two now kind of starts and emerges that will last for years and years and years of fruitful gospel ministry. Verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's just pause there for a moment because we see here a a culture an atmosphere, if you like, a pattern of healthy discipleship. We see what it looks like. Barnabas sees evidence of the grace of God in the lives of the believers, and he encourages them to keep doing what they were doing. Keep being faithful unto the Lord in small things. Keep being faithful and committed. Keep being steadfast in your purpose. Keep doing that which you have been called to do. Keep believing the promises of God. Keep believing the faithfulness of God. Keep believing that even though you don't necessarily can always see it, he's always at work. Keep believing that that which he began, he will bring to completion. Keep believing that your salvation is by grace and grace alone. Keep believing that it's all a work of the Spirit. Keep believing that it's not about you, it's about him, and he is good unto you. Keep believing that as you seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things will be added, and you do it the other way around, it won't work. Keep believing. Think back for a moment 
to the beginning of Acts. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. What's that all mean? It means knowing me, says Jesus. Knowing him, following him, prioritizing the things he did. As you do that, in the little, in the small, in the not spectacular often. Think about the number of things that Jesus spoke about. His illustrations were usually small things. Seed and salt and leaven. Stuff you can't even really see. Stuff that does not look particularly spectacular or impressive, yet has a disproportionate effect on the thing that it's involved in. Keep being like that. Keep being like that. Keep being like that. Keep being like that. Keep persevering. Keep going. Keep praying. Keep turning up. Keep worshiping. Keep giving. Keep trusting. Keep being obedient. Keep believing. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Again, through the years, keep going. When it's good, keep going. When it's not good, keep going. When it's hard, keep going. When it's joyful, keep going and reminding yourself you relate on the basis not of anything you have done, but on the basis of what he has done. Keep going. You will be my witnesses where you live and in the next place and ultimately, as we'll see in a moment, to the ends of the earth. And look how it resulted in a great many people being added. Here's the thing. Healthy discipleship always results in turning outwards, not inwards. It always results in going out, not just becoming a holy huddle that withdraws in. And we see here, too, an openness to receiving instruction and teaching and an absolute ruthless commitment to the word. And this, too, results in fruit. It was outsiders who first called them Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians, literally little Christs. Outsiders recognized them as being different from the world around them and spotted it and began to call them little Christs, Christians. Let's keep reading. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The community at Antioch were not just a word people, but they're a spirit people too. Not just open to the prophetic, but responsive to it. They received a prophetic word, and they acted. They gave generously as a result. They cared about things that were beyond them. They gave financially, everyone according to his ability, to something that they would never personally benefit from. They were a generous church. Let's skip over to, to uh, chapter 13 now, Acts 13, because bubbling away in the background of Acts 12, this church at Antioch is growing nicely, but under the direction of the Holy Spirit, things really begin to explode in chapter 13. Now, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Got a, a team leading here. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Let's pause there. We see here in this multiracial, multicultural church has a leadership team that not only reflects the makeup of the church in terms of its diversity. Barnabas was a Cypriot Jew, what we call a bicultural Jew. Simeon was called Niger, which literally means black. This man was a black African. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was on the, I saw it on the map earlier, was in North Africa, 
more of what we would perhaps call Arabic now. Manian, we don't know much about him, except for the fact he was brought up with Herod, which means he would be what we might describe today as somewhat upper class. And then Saul, who we know was not only Jewish, but was a professor. He was essentially a really smart academic. So we have this first multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class Christian church in history. And the leadership team there reflects that diversity, but this is also significant, reflects the emphasis on team and team leadership. It's not the pastor, but the elders. Let me say that again. It's not the pastor, but the elders. There's a plurality of leadership and eldership in healthy church. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And at this point, the gospel really does just go kind of far beyond Antioch. We'll see here, yeah, there we go, on this map. On their first journey, Barnabas and Saul preached the gospel in Cyprus and then several towns of the northeast uh, part of the Mediterranean. And the new converts in each of those towns formed into local churches. And then Paul and Barnabas sort of double back to go and appoint elders in these churches and before returning to Antioch at the end of chapter 14. This church quite clearly is a kind of base or a hub or a center of what we describe as apostolic ministry, pushing into new areas. And setting out again in Acts 15, go to the next uh, slide if we can, Ebenezer, that'd be awesome, thank you. Paul uh, now revisits several of, the new ch- several of these new churches, and we see that this is significant. It's not just about planting new churches, but it's also about strengthening existing ones. And then feels God directing him north into Bithynia and south into Asia Minor. But actually, he's mistaken. I find that really encouraging. The Apostle Paul makes a mistake. He doesn't quite hear right. You know that moment you think, have I really got this right? And and you think, well, just in case I'm wrong, I better not say anything. The Apostle Paul made a mistake. Do you know what? If you get something slightly wrong at some point, you know, kind of, is that quite what that means? I'm not sure it's such a big deal. And he feels God kind of directing him or gets that wrong. But shortly after, he has a, a dream prompting him to conclude that God was calling them to take the gospel to Macedonia. It's got the top left of that map over there. Modern day Eastern Europe, the edges of, was about to receive the gospel. And after a remarkable journey of, of church planting in Philippi, the leading city of Macedonia, Paul then, uh, see if you recognize any of these names, keeps moving through Thessalonica And then down to Athens, and then Corinth, and then Ephesus, enjoying great church planting success in every town. And by the time we get to chapter 28 of the book of Acts, Paul is now in Rome, all the way in Italy, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. That's a long way from Jerusalem, particularly in an age where he had to walk or ride a horse or get on a boat that wasn't jet-powered. In just 30 years, the gospel makes incredible progress right around the whole world. Here's the question. Can one local church be used for the spread of the gospel among all nations? From Antioch, one local church 
right around the world. This was a church used significantly by God for his glory and the sake of the lost. The church at Antioch was one of the most central, important, crucial, influential churches in early Christianity. A church, we're not, we're not Antioch, but an Antioch-type church. We see in the pages of Scripture here a church that prioritizes being shaped by the Word and led by the Holy Spirit. A church where people see and feel evidence of the grace of God. Perhaps not quite sure tangibly how to put your finger on it. Just feel this atmosphere of the grace of God. A church that is fueled by worship and prayer. And as a consequence, a church that carries a global vision. And a church that doesn't just carry a global vision, but acts locally with intentional cross-cultural engagement and effective mission, reaching out to people who are different from us. A church that focuses on growing and multiplying disciples who don't just sit in meetings, but who in turn go and make other disciples. A generous sending church who sends, who raises and releases leaders to strengthen other churches and to start new ones and gives them away without kind of any sense of, no, we want, I mean, can you imagine being in a church taught for a year by Barnabas and Paul? Like after Jesus, the greatest preacher, Paul, the greatest theologian, and then, oh, we're going to send him away. He's going somewhere else, might never see him again. You think... No, I quite like your teaching. I want to sit and listen. I don't want, I want to listen to you. I... And then they give away again. A church that gives generously, consistently gives away its finances and, and its best people. A church that is multiracial, multicultural, led by a team, highly committed to these things. A church that measures its success not by how many people come into a building, but by how many people leave a building to take on the world with the gospel. Isn't that what we dream of? We've been on this journey over the last few years of redigging the wells, of allowing God to reshape us and redirect us. It's where we're putting our effort and our energy and our focus and our attention. God has prophetically reminded us again of this Antioch type call. We are dreaming of planting and establishing and multiplying communities of disciples and family members and missionaries right across Southeast London and beyond. It's Mad, really. We have a dream of planting churches across the UK and into the nations of the world. Utterly ridiculous. How does one local church do any of these things? Never mind all of them. And yet, we believe God is calling us to lift our heads, to give our hearts and pour our lives out for the sake of the loss, for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the glory of God. Can one local church be used for the spread of the gospel among all nations. I look at this church, I look at us, new community, and I, I see God's grace over us in so many ways. And as an eldership team, we've been driven to pray that God would pour his grace out on us again among us in the, in, as a people in such a way that disciples would be made and communities multiplied right across southeast London and that churches would be planted beyond that through this church. I know that might, for some, sit there and think that's a bit idealistic, a bit far-fetched. I don't believe it is if we believe the Bible. As you read the Bible, are you persuaded? As we hear the prophetic, 
Are you persuaded? The history of this church has been that, rooted in the word, led by the spirit, we become persuaded. We look for where God is working and we change things to join him. That's why we're going to be endeavoring to plant a church in the most random of places in New Haven with some friends of ours from Seaford because we're persuaded that God's in it. It's why we do all of the things, any of the things that we do because we're persuaded that God is in it and leading us. We have never done things because of pragmatism. We have never done things because it's what others are doing. We've never even done things because it's the sensible or the most strategic or the best way of doing something. We have never been scared of starting new things and stopping things, even when they are seemingly very successful. And truthfully, that confounds some people sometimes. And it frustrates them. Why would you stop something that seems to be really working? Why would you change that when it was doing this? Why would you stop that or start that? It's because we're rooted in the word and we're led by the spirit and persuaded that's what God's leading us into. It's why when we were at the height of seeming success, big Sunday attendance across four different meetings in four different places, the whole venues thing, big numbers, I mean... How big was your church is a question you used to be asked a lot. And I said, I don't know, from this size to this size, and I could be out by several hundred at either end. How do you you answer that question? That's why we stopped and changed some things. That's why in the last couple of years, we're really seeking God, word and spirit. It's why we've pushed hard into communities. It's why we talk about it all the time. It's why we have pushed hard against church just being merely a Sunday meeting that you attend a 90-minute or a two-hour experience once a week to get my spiritual kind of box ticked or topped up, and then I'll do the rest of my life throughout the week, and then I'll come back again next week and say, that's, that's it, that's my church thing done. No, no, we've pushed back because we are persuaded that God's plan and purposes in the earth is much more than that, that God's best for each of us is much more than mere Sunday attendance. That healthy discipleship doesn't just pull in with me and my friends and nobody else ever more, but always pushes out. That it's not just, we're thoroughly persuaded, it's not just about the ministry of a few on a platform, but the ministry of many in everyday life, in the situations that take place, not this time on a Sunday, but this time on a Monday. Your worlds, your spheres of influence, your work, your everyday, your family, your street, your location, your neighborhood, your skills, your talents, not the ministry of a few, but the ministry of many, and most of it takes place out there. Not just a church of nations, but a church for nations. That each of us has a part to play. That it's about being added to family And family isn't formed by looking at the back of someone's head on a Sunday and then racing out of the door at the end of the meeting. It's formed and forged in the reality of everyday life with people different from you, perhaps, different stages of life, intergenerational, intercultural, inter-whatever, for the glory of God, because that's where we grow the most. We need to be persuaded. Are you persuaded? just want to back up. Got a couple of minutes left. And finish with Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. So when they had come together, 
Well, that Jesus speaks in a moment. They asked him, the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Got to be persuaded. Got to be persuaded, first of all, that God has a plan. Need to be persuaded that God has a plan and the plan is good. In fact, it's great and it's unstoppable and it's called the church and we need to be persuaded that every single one of us is involved in it and that all of scripture, all of history to this point, all goes towards the supremacy of God in Christ amongst all peoples and that every last bit of it, every last thing of everything we do is for the glory of God. You see, in Acts 1, right before his ascension, Jesus reminds his disciples here in verse 7 that God has a plan. And he makes it clear that whilst we don't know what the future holds, God does. There are fixed times and seasons. God knows the end from the beginning. We don't, and that's okay. But nothing happens without his say-so. All things, whether cosmic in scale or intimately personal in detail, they're all episodes in one story. All things point to the glory of God. We're praying that we might have an unshakable confidence in God, an unshakable confidence in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God, to know that he's in control, to know that fruitfulness in our lives ultimately rests not in what we do, but in his hands, to know that our futures individually and corporately are in his hand, and that frees us to joyful surrender. It's not about me and my plans and my purposes. It's about God, his plan, his kingdom, his glory, his plan to gather for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue from all nations. We need to be persuaded. We need to be persuaded personally too, though. Verse 8 says, but you. To be persuaded God has a great plan is to be persuaded that his chosen ones, all the families, that includes you, all his redeemed, if you put your trust in Christ, that's you, each have the honor of a personal role. Each one throughout all ages and across all nations has a unique, particular contribution, a responsibility to witness and opportunity to contribute. Yes, the Father has a plan, but it is outworked through his children. You are a witness. You have a purpose. Your life is now infused with meaning. The beauty is, because of Jesus, you don't have to find yourself to figure out your meaning in life. You don't have to find or wait for the right set of circumstances to discover your purpose in life. Because of Jesus, he has given you this purpose of making you part of his story to get swept up in what God is doing. You are not an accident. You're a child of God. You are imagined and created and placed and timed to utter perfection. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You need to be persuaded personally. You're part of it. Actually, we need to, third thing, nearly finish. We need to be persuaded about uncertainty too. You see, this certainty in the absolute sovereignty of God doesn't mean that we can see everything clearly. I actually think this is probably for us in, a, in this next season a bit of a key thing. We need to be persuaded about uncertainty. Look at verse 7. It is not for you to know. We have no idea how things are going to work out. 
being confident in the sovereignty and plans and purposes of God, being confident, being persuaded that we are personally engaged and involved, doesn't make us arrogant or cocky, doesn't mean that everything will be straightforward, it doesn't mean that we'll be exempt from pain or suffering a trial or trial, it doesn't mean that we're better than everyone else. The disciples were so often mistaken about how God was going to work. Look at the question in verse 6, they were just so wrong. Jesus makes it clear that even though we may lack, might be wrong, we might lack in many of the details, we might be limited by our partial revelation, we might be limited by our lack of vision, we might be limited by our lack of perspective or a lack of clarity, even so, we are persuaded of his sovereignty and his plan and our part to play. We'll get things wrong. We'll make mistakes. Some things we try will fail. Sometimes we'll think we hear from God, and it turns out that we didn't. There'll be mystery and surprise and pain and disappointment. Do you know what? It's okay. We have to be persuaded about uncertainty. And the last thing, we have to be persuaded that the Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus told his confused disciples it would be better for them, for him to leave. Because then the Holy Spirit, the helper, the empowerer, the comfort, comforter, the equipper, the Holy Spirit would come. Where the Spirit is at work, obedience follows, right? Where the Spirit leads, willing disciples follow. In him is power. Not just for miracles, not just for big dramatic healings, but in him is the power to keep going when everything else gets tough. In him is the power to resist the evil one. In him is the power to transform. In him is the power to persevere. In him is the power to overcome sin. In him is the power to live a life of witness to the glory of God. In him is the power to face whatever it is you have to do this time tomorrow. In him is the power to fight fear. In him is the power to take the gospel to unreached peoples. In him is the power to make massive life-altering decisions that say, do you know what? I'll go, I'll witness, I'll give, I'll serve. Only with the power of the Spirit are these things possible. Without him, nothing's possible. But through him, nothing is impossible. And this, to be honest, just land finish here, introduces a kind of necessary note, I suppose, of devotion if we're persuaded of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will pray. If we're persuaded of the power and the presence of the Spirit, we will pray in the Spirit, we'll pray all night, we'll pray all day, seeking the Lord and his power. If we're persuaded of the plans and purposes of the Lord, we will give ourselves generously of our time, we'll serve brothers and sisters, we'll give of our money, to things that we will never personally benefit from, perhaps. We will seek first the kingdom, and all these other things will be added. Are you persuaded? What's the state of play of your relationship with the Holy Spirit? What's the state of play of your relationship with Jesus' bride, the church? Are you persuaded? Being persuaded does not mean that you think every single T has to be crossed, and every I has to be dotted, and that this church has every single thing nailed down. You're waiting for that church where everything goes, everything is brilliant. You ain't finding it. Being persuaded is the equivalent of looking at your wife after 17 years of marriage 
and saying, I see all of the stuff that ain't great, and you see it all in me. I see all the warts and all in me, not Han. And I'm fully persuaded, because I see something beautiful that I've grown to know and love, and I'm going to give myself fully. And human marriage is but a fading... Um, there's no marriage in heaven, right? Praise Jesus. It's just a sign. <laughs> the, if Han was in the room right now, the biggest amen would be coming from her. <laughs> we invest so much weight on something that is fading and earthly. It's merely a sign of something far greater. Jesus and his bride. You have to be persuaded. And if you are, the Spirit is poured out and he equips and empowers normal people like you and I to be used for his glory in ways that we could never imagine. When Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, they must have said, are you mad? I've never even heard of the ends of the earth. I don't know anything beyond where I can walk in a day and a half. And yet, just in 30 years, he changed the entire world through the hands of men and women from Cyprus and Cyrene, whose names aren't even recorded in history, but whose names are written in the book of life, and right now are enjoying the fullness of that which earthly marriage points, the bride of Christ and his church, which will march triumphant into all eternity. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, we thank you for your presence with us today. For this reminder of the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the plans and promises of God which do not fail, which echo throughout all eternity. Ram them deep into our hearts for your glory, our good, and the sake of a lost world who desperately needs to know the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of God. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.